God is doing something in this room right now and those watching online that there's some perspective shifting going on needed in all of us. Because there are some days, man, and this is just, like David said a second ago, that there's some, this is just one of those weeks in the life of our church where you just really feel the effects of the power of death. <laughs> it's still at work in this world. There are those grieving in our church this week. There are those who are struggling because of health issues or their family members in the hospital. And I think for all of us, we, we feel that sometimes. And sometimes in the deep, dark winter, it, I don't know, it's just that much more difficult to see hope. That we feel the effects, the power of death. And we also, some of us really feel the effects of sin in our lives as well. And maybe for some of you, man, you're just exhausted. Maybe you've been trying to work on your marriage for a long time and it feels like nothing's sticking. Maybe as a parent, you've just been, you've been trying to be as consistent as you know how, but it just seems like nothing's changing. Or maybe you've been trying to reach your coworkers, your neighbors who don't know Christ, and it's like, man, they keep throwing up that wall. Whatever it might be. What this song reminds us is that we have a God who has defeated the powers of death and sin. This is not a concept, an abstract idea. This is a historical reality that we have a living God who came and made a way through the grave. And that the Apostle Paul celebrates this and he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, right after that, he says, if this is our reality, that we know that death is not the final word for those who place their hope and trust in Jesus. And we know that sin has lost its power over us. That addiction, it can be broken in his name says them this, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in what? Vain. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That even if it feels like you're just beating your head against a wall, as you try to parent in your marriage, at your workplace, in your family, Jesus says, your labor is not in vain. I see you, I've made a way. And so Jesus, we ask that you continue to, to encourage, build up, comfort, strengthen your people this morning in the reality that you are a living God that you've made a way through death and sin, the greatest fears we have in life of what's going to happen to our lives, our loved ones. God, that's not a period. Death is not a period. God, we know because you are alive, you've made a way. And we know that sin is not a period. Addiction is not a period. But ultimately, it's a dot, dot, dot when we come to you, Jesus. 
And so, Jesus, will you come and move in such a way in our lives? May you minister to and comfort and encourage all of us to not give up hope, to stand firm in you, to lift our gaze from our hopelessness, our depression, our anxieties, that you might fill us with hope and faith again. And then we might follow you in just the next step forward. Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive and that you are working. And that despite my limitations, our limitations, that you are the almighty God. So wherever we are, beginning now, even if the only prayer we have is just Jesus, God, may you show us how to bring the reality of you into every situation of our lives. In your holy, holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Man, thank you guys. You may have a seat. And thank you, worship team. What a powerful song. What a powerful reminder of who our God is. Man, and I have to say, it is so good to see you guys this morning. You know, two weeks ago, Shelby and I uh, were down with family in Tennessee. Thank you. And last week, being a snow day, it feels like it's been a while since we've been able to be here in person. And so I am so grateful uh, for the chance to be able to be with you guys. Um, And fun, fun, we're starting a new sermon series today. All right. It's a four-week series called Jonah, A Story of God's Relentless Grace. Now, let me give you a little context, though. Instead of just jumping right into this book, If you've ever tried, this is an Old Testament book, and if you've ever tried reading through the Old Testament from front to back, you're first going to encounter five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And these are really the foundational books of the Old Testament where we see that God created the world and he created human beings, created human beings to know and love him, but yet human beings decided we would be better without God, rebelled against him. But even though we walked away from God, God did not walk away from us and he pursued humanity, called Abraham, and this is from your descendants are going to come my people. And sure enough, when those same descendants of Abraham were in slavery in Egypt, God sent a guy named Moses to rescue them, make them his own, give them his law, and says, I promise you, I'm going to give you a land where you're going to be my nation, my people. Those are the Israelites. How's that for a quick summary of the first five books, right? Genesis to Deuteronomy. But then as you keep on traveling through, you're going to end up in the books of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and others. And these are now still the story, the history of those people, the Israelites. And we read about judges, prophets, priests, and kings, some who obeyed God, some who did not, and how eventually the nation turned from God, and there was a division, a split, and eventually they were taken into exile until God brought them back to the land later on. And if you're continuing past this historical terrain of the Old Testament, you're eventually going to make your way to the worship songs of King David. And then the wisdom literature of King Solomon. Wisdom books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the saucy Song of Solomon. Right? And if you keep on going, you're going to end up at the bold words of the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. These mighty men of God who declared the word of God for their generation, for their time, as well as proclaimed events yet to come. And if you keep going, after a quick stop through Daniel, we arrive at this section that 
closes out the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets, they're not called minor because they're less important. It just means they're shorter books. But you have guys like Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, all of these guys who, just like the other prophets, speak the word of God with major chutzpah, right? Boldness to their time, to their people, to their place, as well as proclaiming things to come. But in the middle of this minor prophet section, we come across a book called Jonah. Now, Jonah's in there. Because Jonah, too, was a prophet. And it's a book about him. But if you're flipping through too fast, like this is a really short book. It's only 48 verses long. So if you're going past Obadiah and you actually grab two pages, you'll miss it. But the thing is, though Jonah is in the minor prophet section, it is unlike any of the other books in that section. And that for one, it's not Jonah declaring the words of God, so to speak, like the others. In fact, when God said, Jonah, this is what I want you to say, Jonah says, nah. And he runs away. Now, this guy isn't, like, while the others are like, man, amazing faith of these minor prophets, like, Jonah's not the hero in his story at all. And if any of you understand where a lot of us are coming from, anytime some of us hear the story of Jonah, you know, especially if you went to Sunday school growing up, you automatically think of Jonah and the whale or big fish. But really, this story is not about the fish. The, the fish is only mentioned three times in this entire book, three verses. No, really, this short book is about what happens when the word, the call, the compassion of God collides with the walls we built up between ourselves and others in fear. When the call and compassion of God collides with our own plans and purposes for our lives. When the call of God collides with our own earthly loyalties and self-identities. It's way more than a fish. It's not so much about a great fish as much as a great God and his great heart. Now, before we jump in, it's worth adding just a note. There is a debate among evangelical scholars, you know, people who take God's word seriously, who see this as God's word to us. There's a debate among them about whether Jonah was an, a retelling of historical events that's placed here in order to teach us something, or whether Jonah is more like a parable, kind of like Jesus told, and maybe a fictional story that's still designed to teach us something. Now, just so you know where I come from and how I'll be preaching through this, like, I, I lean more toward that it is historical, right? That, that's my belief. I mean, if, for one, like, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, surely we can believe that God can send a big fish to swallow up and save Jonah's life, right? But whether we're coming from a, a this is a, a parable or historical story, like, it doesn't really matter as much as what is God trying to teach us through this. Because whether this is history or a parable, it's really about what is God. This is still God's word, right? And this is still here in order to teach and edify us. So the real question, I believe, as we come to this is, okay, God, what is it that you want us as your people to hear and take from your word? And so as we dive into it, we're going to open Jonah 1. And we're going to think together first 
But what is it that God really intends, plans for our lives? And when he actually, while we may like the idea of God having plans and purposes for our lives, when, it, when the rubber meets the road, sometimes we're not such a fan anymore. But even when we resist God or turn from him, who is he? And how does he still meet us? We're in Jonah chapter 1. And now if you want to pull out one of the blue Bibles in front of you, we're on page 753. 753. You guys ready? All right, this is action-packed book. Jonah chapter 1. We're just going to read the first 17 verses together. Actually, before I jump in, let me just add one more comment here. When I said a second ago that whether this is history or parable, right, what I was trying to say here was not that it doesn't matter. What I am saying is that whether you are a scholar who believes that this is meant to be a parable that teaches or whether this is meant to be history, that this is still something that is meant to edify and encourage and build up the church. Was that clear? I just want to make sure that we're hearing that loud and clear, that I'm not you know, saying it doesn't matter if it's true or not, but I am saying what ultimately matters, right, is what we hear when we come to God's Word. Okay, I just want to make sure that's clear. I don't want any emails after this, all right? That's my main thing. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From, where, from what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So he asked them, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up. Throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. And I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Join me with me while I pray. God, 
I pray that you would use your word here, your word to us, and that your spirit would illuminate it to each of our hearts individually. And so that God, that you would, would change us, mold us, that we might become more like you, that we might be free from the things that keep us from you and from those you love. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jonah is a short book, but it is certainly not short on action. You know, in the, we didn't get to read all of it, but in these 48 verses, we see an escaping prophet, a foreboding storm, a human swallowing fish turned later to be a human regurgitating fish, a mass conversion of a pagan, mass conversion of a pagan city, and to top it off, a magical plant at the end, right? If you're curious, you can read the whole thing, you know what I'm talking about. But in this short amount of time, this wild ride, by the end, Jonah is not the same man. But what is it that sparks, that kicks off, that launches this whole story of events? Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What was the moment that changed everything? When God spoke. And why is it that God spoke to Jonah? What is it that God was doing or wanting to do in him? And what? And he speaks and moves toward us, which I promise he is doing today. What is it that he wants for you? You see, when God speaks to us, his word disrupts our lives. A holy disruption. But it does so to lead us toward greater freedom. So let's get back into the story and introduce you to the guy Jonah. Son of Amittai. Now, we don't know a ton about this guy, except that he's a Hebrew. He's a man of Israel. And we get one verse in the entire Old Testament that tells us anything about him. And it's from 2 Kings 14, verse 25, where it said that Jonah lived in the time of Jeroboam II. And in that time, he prophesied from the Lord that the borders of their nation were going to expand back to their original God-given design. Right, so what can we confidently assume just from those couple, that verse about who Jonah was? Well, that he was a man who was for his country. He was most likely a highly patriotic person. Who is his loyalty, his purpose, as he saw it, was to his people, the Hebrew people. So there's Jonah on one side. But now, then God brings up another group of people. The city of Nineveh. That he calls the great, or which meant massive, because it was, city. And in Jonah's day, Nineveh was the foreboding capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now today, that once great city lies in ruins. You can find it in northern Iraq. But in that day, it was the principal seat of power from which the pagan Assyrian kings planned their brutal conquests across the world, including in Israel. See, the Assyrians were the picture of human self-exaltation. To any gods or people that stood in their way, they were the pic- picture of the people that would throw the middle finger. Just to kind of give you a sense of who they were. That they conquered without mercy. They were infamous for their cruelty. And eventually, after Jonah's time, they even conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 B.C. And in fact, the minor prophet uh, Nahum, the whole book 
It's short, it's short, but the whole thing is about a pronouncement of God's judgment against Nineveh for its wickedness. Nahum said at the very end, Nothing can heal you, Nineveh. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? That's how, if you weren't an Assyrian, that's how you felt about Nineveh. In one translation of Jonah 1 2, God says, Their wickedness smells to the highest heaven. See, I'm laying all this out because it wasn't that the Hebrew people and the Ninevites didn't get along. It wasn't that they just annoyed each other or they had some cultural differences. Oh no. The Assyrians were, in every sense of the word, vile enemies of Jonah and the Hebrew people because all they wanted to do was to steal and kill Jonah's people and nation. So let me ask you, if you knew there was a people group that existed in this world who only wanted to steal and kill your family, your people, your nation, how would you feel about them? I mean, is it too far to compare how Jonah might have felt about them, how many in our nation feel about terrorists in other countries? The only difference is Assyria was a massive empire. And yet, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh and preach. Notice God did not say, stay within your comfortable borders and then talk about Nineveh there. A lot of the minor prophets, that's what they did. He said, no, I want you to physically take yourself, Jonah, and go to where they are and preach to them so they might have an opportunity to turn from their vile wickedness. And how do you think a proud, patriotic prophet like Jonah would respond to that? so well. And would any of us, it's direct, it's in direct conflict with who he is as a Hebrew man, his loyalty to his people, his own understanding of his plans and his purposes for his life. God's word was disrupting his whole life. Not to mention, I'm sure he was terrified if he actually went what they might do to him or what his own people might think of him if he went there. But my question is, what does all of this show us about who our God is? You see, if our self-prescribed or earthly loyalties or fears are keeping us back from what God's doing, he will confront them so that we can move beyond them. The God has a plan a purpose for each of our lives. He had a purpose for Abram. But he said, but first, Abram, you've got to leave your country and your family and go to a land I'm going to show you. He had a purpose for Moses. But first, Moses, you've got to leave being a shepherd and go back to Egypt to liberate my people from slavery. He had a purpose for this teenage Jeremiah. But first, Jeremiah, you've got to open your mouth and speak to an obstinate and rebellious people. He had a purpose for Peter and Andrew. But first, Peter and Andrew had to leave their nets and the family business in order to follow Jesus. 
And with each time God spoke to them, it was not a dialogue. It was not a suggestion. It was the sovereign creator calling them out from beyond their fears, their wounds, their bitterness, their plans, their purpose, their prejudice, their insecurities, so that they could fully and freely join in what the God of heaven is doing here on earth. You see, because God's not aloof to this world. He is active and working in each of our lives and all around us, and he is moving us actively toward that same goal. Sometimes when God speaks to us, he's moving our lives, disrupting them in big ways. Remember in 2008, God impressed upon Shelby and I, a couple naive Tennessee kids, to go to New England because there was something he's doing here, and we were to somehow be a part of it. Sometimes he disrupts just our daily routines or our sense of anxiety, right? He's may, we may sit down for lunch, and he says, see that person sitting beside themselves over there? I want you to get up and go sit down next to them. God, that's not what I do, <laughs> right? That is not me. I'm an introvert, therefore I have a pass on any of that, right? Other times, his word may disrupt our state of being, and that he brings, in our state of anxiety, he brings in trust. In our state of, of, of hopelessness, he brings in joy. In our state of addiction, freedom, and bitterness, forgiveness. That God is always working and moving toward us. And if he's disrupting us, it's because he wants to move us closer to him and to those he loves. And despite Nineveh's wickedness, God still loved the Ninevites so much that he wanted them to turn back to him. But like Jonah, there come moments in our lives when the word of God comes to us. And when it comes, it totally disrupts our cozy equilibrium. It challenges our deepest fears but it's all because he wants to move us that we might be freely and fully join into what he's doing around and in us. But like Jonah, we don't always welcome that, do we? When the word of the Lord came to Jonah, I mean, how did he respond? And before we judge him, when God begins to disrupt our lives with his word and the desire to change and free us, how, how can we tend to respond too? See, sometimes God's word doesn't always sound like hope and healing. Sometimes God's word sounds initially to us like a threat. And when God's word sounds like a threat to our lives, we naturally want to resist and run too. God said, Jonah, go. Jonah said, no. And in verse 3, reads, Jonah ran away from the Lord, which, I mean, in our ears sounds ridiculous because he's running away from the sovereign God of the whole universe here. I mean, Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere, right? Nowhere. But when we're trying to keep control of our lives, we're not always thinking logically, are we? And when we insist on running our own lives, we will try to run from God. So he heads for Joppa, which on this map, Joppa is right there in the bottom right section. It's modern-day Tel Aviv. And he 
the crazy thing is he gets in Joppa and he finds a boat. But the Hebrew people, they were not boat people. They were not ocean people. They were land people. I doubt any of them even knew how to swim. But Jonah in this moment would rather risk his life at sea than surrender his life to God. And on top of that, he gets there and gives a sizable sum of money to a crew of sailors he doesn't know in order to try to get them across, get him ultimately to Tarshish, which most people believe Tarshish was way over there in southern Spain. He would rather do all that than trust himself to the hands of God. Now why? Why would Jonah take such risk and spend so much money? Because, man, our sinful human nature will sometimes go to whatever lengths it needs to to maintain control. (laughs) To try to stay in control. Because when God illuminates those fears, our need for control, our desires, our wounds, and he challenges us, I'm going to heal that, I'm going to move you beyond that, we start to hear that old lie that, no, 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 my life will be better off if I run from than if I stay with God. Now, running may not look like traveling anywhere. Running to some of us may just look like I get super busy. I turn up the noise in my life. I, I, I start drinking a bit too much. I just go la, 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 la to God, right? I had one friend, I asked, he was making a big decision in his life about whether he should go or who, no, it was who she, he should date. And I told him, I said, well, have you asked God about it? He said, no, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> That's a form of running, right? It's, it's I, I just don't want to hear. I'm not interested in what he has to say. And man, it's interesting how when we watch people running, we've probably experienced it personally and watched it. How I've seen people start running from God and immediately they get involved in addiction. They end up wounding their marriages, causing some sort of devastation in their life that they never would have dreamed of otherwise. But there's something about when we start to run from God, all that starts to sound like a good idea. Because that's part of how that lie twists our thinking. That we may like the idea of God's purpose for our lives. But, we can't, but what do we do when we realize we cannot fulfill our purpose and keep our throne? How do we respond to that? See, God's plan for Jonah was to be his prophet first. Not Israel's prophet first. His prophet first. And when God said, go to Nineveh, it was now in conflict with who he was, his, his purpose for his life. And see, sometimes like we may love to dream of, man, what, how's God going to use me? How's he going to leave a legacy behind me? How are people going to be transformed? The world's going to change because I've been faithful to Jesus. But the moment that Jesus brings us to a place where we must confront those deepest fears within us, how do we respond? So like I said, in 2008, the thought of coming from Tennessee to New England sounded like an adventure for Shelby and I. Man, we would sit there and just talk on our drives anywhere. Like, oh, man, what do you think God's going to do? That's going to be great, isn't it? And then 2013, right as I was about to finish seminary, I took a class. And this class held nothing back as far as telling how tough ministry can be and all the, like, the worst of stories. And all those stories started triggering certain fears in me that I didn't even know were there. 
And I started thinking, oh no, am I going to fail? What if we get hurt? What if I can't cut it? And immediately I wanted to run. And I thought, like, I actually started making plans to run. And it sounded logical in my mind. Because it's amazing how fear tries to convince us that we'll be happier running our own lives. You really want to live? Live for yourself. But in reality, without God, it's really a slow death. See, the result of running from God was not Jonah sipping pina coladas on the beach of Tarshish. That's maybe what he had in his head, but in reality, it was chaos and a numb heart. That running from God didn't make Jonah more in control, didn't make him any happier. It only led to pain for others. And he was zoned out, checked out, asleep in the bottom of that boat. And this is the effect of sin, everybody. This is the effect of running from God. That we may be physically alive, but we are not really living. And if that's all you know, man, I just I hope the Spirit impresses that upon your heart this morning. But it is only God's mercy that wakes Jonah up. Why did he send that storm? You see, because even when we try to run away from God, he doesn't stop running toward us. And when we read about what happens next, it's easy for me, at least when I read this story, to see the, the storm as God's anger tantrum against Jonah. He's taken all his frustration out on him. But when I looked closer, I said, no, wait. That storm and there's two other things are actually signs of God's mercy to Jonah. And I want us to see these three signs of God's mercy to him in this. First, when, when Jonah was asleep to God's voice, he used the storm to wake him up. So that violent storm hit the ship so hard, the ship said, I about give up. Right? And all the sailors are freaking out. They're, they're pagan sailors, so they're just calling out to whatever gods they knew for some sort of help. And eventually, when that doesn't work, they start trying to save themselves. They start trying to throw cargo overboard to, to lighten the load. Have you ever heard that phrase, uh, pray like it depends on God, work like it depends on you? Like, like that's kind of what they were doing right here. You know, and Jonah, meanwhile, is in a deep REM cycle in the bottom of the ship, oblivious to everything going on, until the captain comes down and wakes him up. You see... God allows some storms in our lives in order to wake us up to his voice. I did not say God allows all our storms to wake us up to his voice. Because who am I to understand why God allows what he does? Right? But I can at least speak from my own experience in my life, as I'm sure some of you can as well. That there are times that I was completely numb to God's voice in my life. And he had to allow me to go through a difficulty to wake me up. Anybody else ever go, know what I'm talking about? Yes. And these difficulties jarred me into realizing how much I had kind of leaned back into depending on myself instead of depending on him. And he knew that if I was going to take the next step in following him, then I had to learn to depend on him more deeply. So the storm was not God's anger or condemnation or judgment on Jonah as much as it was a work of mercy from a heavenly father. Do you guys see that? Do you see that? 
But second, God used an unbeliever to convict the heart of the believer. (laughs) See, while Jonah thinks that he can run from God, it's the captain who says, get up and call your God. That captain does not know Jonah's God. He is not familiar with the one true God. But yet he still saw the gravity of the situation better than Jonah. And the captain didn't dare assume that he could trifle with God. In the storm, the captain, the pagan captain, had a better understanding of who God was than Jonah. And man, when I look out in our world today, do we not see so many people who do not know God? who are crying out in the midst of their own storms of loneliness, of depression, of addiction, of hopelessness, of division. And they're asking, what God, where where are we going to find the solution? And sometimes those very people are in our families, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in our workplace, and when we finally hear them cry out, well, what is this? We start to realize, oh man, I do have a hope to share with them. And their cries are actually God's allowing us in his mercy to hear that, to wake us up that he is the solution that this world needs to hear. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we have that to share with them. That that too is a gift of mercy. But then third and last, when Jonah deserved death for his rebellion, God provided the rescue. The lot it says, landed on Jonah. Now, lots in those days were most likely these, these wooden, like, dice-looking things that were, had various colors painted on the sides. And you rolled them, and when they landed in certain combinations, it, they, they interpreted that as the gods speaking to them. And so they took those dice and rolled it. And sure enough, it was Jonah was the one that, that was guilty. And he confessed to them, this is, I, I'm running from my God. And, and he said, throw me in the sea, right? Like, that's what I want to do. But even when he said, throw me in the sea, what's like, honorable about these sailors they still tried to save him. They still tried on their own strength and their own human attempts to save him. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves or anybody else. But eventually, they throw Jonah into the dark ocean of death. And there's no question in their minds or Jonah's mind, Jonah's going to drown. This was it for him. For the treason that he had committed against God. He deserved. This was the just penalty for turning from God. And if Jonah was going to be saved, it could only be, only be because of the mercy of God. And then from the depths, God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life. I find the first question people ask when they read this is, what kind of fish was this? Was this a whale? Did you think it was a blue whale? Like, what, what do you think? I, don't, I, I think that's kind of missing the point, right? I don't think the story's trying to answer that question. The better question is, what is, was this fish supposed to symbolize? God's endless mercy, Jesus. And this is the gospel according to Jonah. That when you and I sought to run our own lives, when we refuse to follow him, when we've committed treason against God, what justice do we deserve? 
for our rebellion against our creator? Death. And the only hope we have is that maybe God would have mercy. But the amazing news is that when we only had God's mercy that could save us, God came. Jesus was born into our world, entered the depths of our death, and then just when we, it seemed like death had won against him, he rose from the grave so that all those who believe in him, they too might have a relationship with him and be rescued only by the mercy and grace of God. And then even when we run from God like he's a threat, his mercy pursues us like a father. Anybody else get the image of the prodigal son? What did the father do? Run to his son. Even if you've been running from God your whole life, do you realize that he's always been pursuing your heart and your life? Always, because his love is endless. And nowhere is that more clear than when we look at the cross and what he was willing to do to rescue us. And if you are a Christ follower in here, you have given your life, but if you're honest, you're like, man, I've been resisting God a lot lately. I don't know if I would say I've been running from him, but maybe you've just been refusing to hand over certain things to him. Or maybe like you know God's called you to something, and you're just like, ah, I'll get to that later. My encouragement is to you is to stop running and come to him. Stop running. Because if he's willing to die for us, how much more can he be trusted with our lives? And in a moment, we're going to take communion together where we reenact and remember that night that Jesus told his disciples that he was offering his life as a sacrifice for the world to rescue us all. But before we take communion, I'd like to make sure we give time of silence to where if there's anything in our hearts and our lives that's holding us back from God, that we take a moment to confess that. And so my question to you before we have a moment of silence is how is your relationship with God right now? Just be honest. How is it? Some of you might say, yeah, I've been running. It seems pretty far, distant. Or maybe I'm just confused. Or maybe I'm just troubled. I encourage you to use this moment of silence right now. Just say, God, I don't want to be far from you. So whatever I got to hand over to you, whatever I got to talk to you about, whatever you need to show me, will you do it? And if you're in here and you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about a relationship with Jesus, man, come find me. Come find Pastor David after this service. We want to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about that. And if you're somebody in here and you're like, man, actually God and I are really close right now and I feel like I'm growing actively. Man, it's great. Use this moment of silence as a time just to thank him for his mercy and to pray for those around you. But no matter how far or close we may feel, We have a God who's always moving toward us like a father so that we can be free. And even when we run from God like he's a threat, his mercy pursues us like a father. So, Lord, I pray that you come and whatever it is, if if there's anything between us and you, I pray, God, that you just speak that to our hearts, that you affirm your mercy and that you make your love rest upon each person in this room.
God, if we're holding on to any bitterness against somebody, if we've been angry at you for how you've, like, life has disrupted our plans, if we are confused, not sure what's true, or if we, God, are just so afraid it's hard to see the truth, I pray that you will cleanse our minds with your reality of who you are and open our hearts to the nature of your love. So let's take a moment of silence right now. You can just allow God to speak to your heart and mind, however you're led.